Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. To keep up with all the content and subscribe to my flagship newsletter, please visit themasculinist.com. And now for today's episode. Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. I got an interesting email yesterday from a reader slash listener, and it was a screenshot of his corporate firewall showing me that the masculinist.com was a blocked site. So I am now officially a blocked site. I feel like I'm starting to hit the big time here. So uh, if anybody runs into anything like that, uh, just be aware that uh, maybe I'm starting to get added to some blacklists. There you go. Um, I was also talking with a friend of mine uh, in the last um, couple weeks, and he came up with this framing of how to talk about the top people in the evangelical world that he called the uh, elite adjacent evangelical. And it's an interesting concept, and so I want to just kind of lay it out and and talk with you about it today and why I think it it has some value and some resonance. We like to talk about the elite, right? So we'll talk about elite evangelicals or the evangelical elite, and like, what the heck does that really mean? It's like a good question. But I think the key is that this phraseology um, essentially validates that these people are elites, right? It's like when you call somebody the evangelical elite or an elite evangelical, you're really saying, yes, you are elite. And frankly, a lot of these people that, you know, kind of get that that framing um, really actually aren't elite, right? They're not even elite within evangelicalism, much less outside of it. Um, it's, so in a sense, elite is used in the same sense that someone might talk about the you know Republican establishment or the Democratic establishment. You're like an establishment. You're a company man. So that phrasing uh, is sometimes used for that. But it, it, so I don't I don't want to say that people are necessarily claiming these people are elite because many of them are just objectively again not even within the evangelical world elite. But it does actually validate the idea that they're elite. And the truth is, the elites within evangelicalism are not elites within our society. And I'll put it to you again. People who are at elite or at the top of the pecking order within the evangelical world are not elites in society. If you go back to uh, the mid-century era, and if you remember my podcast that I did uh, about the consequences of the decline of the mainline denominations back then in, say, the 50s, top mainline Protestant leaders really were taken seriously in the country as, uh, you know, maybe peers of, you know, the the uh, business elite or the social elite or the academic elite. You know, they were really these big, important spokesmen of society. That's just not true today. One of the things that we see is there's kind of this myth that we have that we sort of pretend that the people who are at the top in every single field are essentially peers. So the top anthropologist and the top physicist and, you know, the top, you know, English uh, literature scholar and the top venture capitalist and the top urban planner and the top architects, the people who sit at the top of all these fields are essentially peers and are equal talent in every way. In fact, that's just not true. Some fields are full of much smarter people than other fields. I really saw this one time uh, when I attended an urbanism conference, 
And one of the panelists was actually a, a panelist of venture capitalists. And these were like real venture capitalists. These weren't just some 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 junior varsity guys. And I came out of that. I'm just like, man, the guys on that venture capital panel were so obviously much higher wattage people than the ones talking about cities. Now, keep in mind, I'm a city guy, right? Is just unbelievable. And I was talking to my friend who works for Google. He's like, yeah, you know, we like to pretend that like the people at the tops of the pyramids and all of these domains are equal. The fact is they're just not. And we don't want them to be. You know, it's like we want the people who are inventing new technologies, who are allocating investment capital to be the smartest people because those are the things that have the most leverage in our society. And so I think there's this maybe this pretense sometime that the top people in the world of evangelicalism are somehow peers of, say, the top people in secular media or the top people in universities, et cetera. The fact is that's just not true. The people at the top of the pecking order in the evangelical world are a sub-elite, a subaltern elite. They are the essentially top people in a domain that is lower status, lower wattage, etc., and does that mean that they're not elites? You're saying you, you couldn't describe them as elite? No, you know, because there's, there's obviously, again, there's gradations of elite. That's why I call them, you know, a, a subaltern elite. I mean, in a sense, right, I'm an elite. And people could, could accuse me of being an elite, right? So I've written in the New York Times. I've written in The Guardian. I've written in The Washington Post. I've written in The Atlantic. I've been quoted in a lot of newspapers. So at some level, yeah, I'm participating in these elite organs, of society. So you can say that I'm elite. Now, does that mean I'm a genuine mover and shaker? No, no. I'm like, I would be like on the, on the junior league, right? Of, of junior varsity of, of the elite. But this idea that, go, oh, I could say I'm not an elite. I'm just a regular guy. You know, I'm not a regular guy. Let's just be honest. I'm not a regular guy. So I don't want to pretend that these are just like regular guys. On the other hand, I, I do think it is important for us to recognize and talk about them in ways that recognize that these folks are not genuine elites in our society. They are at best a sub-elite. And the idea of the elite adjacent evangelical, I think is a very interesting one. They are people who sit in a space adjacent to the social elite. Many of them have deliberately maneuvered their way there. And in that place, they're essentially trying to you know, glom on to the gen, you know, the, the genuine elite, earn the approval of the genuine elite, perhaps. And, you know, that's that's maybe the best way to look at it. Now, does this term, you know, elite adjacent evangelical, maybe that's a mouthful. I'm not sure that's the, the, the end term, but I, it does capture something important. And so I think it is important for us to think, wow, you know, some of these guys, they're just, they're really not elites in the same sense that some of these other folks are elites. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, another one I saw, and I'm going to throw this in the Weekly Digest, is an interesting article that was written by Denny Burke. Again, I did a, you may recall, I did a live stream with Denny Burke uh, about complementarianism and its discontents. You can look it up on the YouTube channel. He's the president of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He's a Southern Baptist. He just wrote an article about cussing. Like, why are we cussing as Christians? Who's trying to come up with this idea of godly cussings? And I, I appreciate it. I'm going to get, I'm going to include it in the, in the link and. You know, when I time to time I will come around people who are very serious Catholics, and there's just a cultural difference between like really serious Catholics and really serious Protestants. So if you take a really serious cradle Catholic, let's say somebody's from like an Irish Catholic family, they cuss like sailors. A lot of them, right? They drink a lot. 
They cuss like sailors, etc. You come over to the Protestant world, much, much less profanity, much, much, much less uh, drinking of alcohol. Again, in the Southern Baptist world, a lot of maybe no drinking at all. Now, of course, if you talk to the Catholics, what would they say? Well, man, these, uh, you know, these Protestants, they're pretty loose on contraception. They're pretty loose on divorce. Their sexual ethics are not where they should be. So I'm not dissing on the Catholics. I think there's there's areas you can kind of go back and forth, but it's just a little cultural difference, and cussing is one of them. And so I really I really appreciated this. And, you know, I've always thought that, you know, cussing, there's probably not a lot of value add in cussing. And so I try not to do it. In fact, even really before I was a Christian, just as I was getting older, I noticed that I basically had stopped, you know, cussing all that much. I mean, when I was in my 20s, early 30s, I was dropping F-bombs like crazy. And, you know, kind of as I got later into my 30s, I just really started doing that, really dialed it back a lot. Now I try to avoid using profanity. And the truth is, I just don't really ever rarely desire to, to use it. It's not, you know, occasionally maybe a word will pop out, but for the most part, it's not like I'm actually fighting temptation here. Uh, it's, not, it's not a daily temptation or anything like that. It's like just now I just, the way that I am, I don't use profanity. But anyhow, I say all that to say this. I'm going to use some profanity in this podcast right now because I'm going to relay a term that uh, in, involves, a, you know, a, a, a bit of profanity. And I, I could write it in a, in a way, you know, could put some some dashes or some stars in it, but it's a little hard to do that in it. And so the term is a phrase. I'm going to use this profanity because it's a phrase that I saw on the Internet that got some recent currency in kind of the online right-wing world. You know, I've been doing this series uh, on the Masculist Newsletter about the dissident right. And and so this kind of crowd has come up with this term that I believe originated with Bronze Age pervert, BAP. Just people just call him BAP. Very, you know, who, who, you know it just saying the word pervert just makes you sound a little crazy. Dude. I don't, it almost sounds like you're saying something wrong. But anyhow, the term is shitlib yokel. Again, the term is shitlib yokel. And I'm going to call it from now on the progressive yokel. So the idea is, you know, it's just they're, they're liberals in your community. And the idea of this phrase is to determine where the source of leftist energy in red states is coming from. And if you listen to the typical way people think about it, um, what they see is, uh, what they will say is, it's the California transplants who are doing this to it. Oh, the California guys moved here and they're turning our state blue. And maybe that's true in some places, but that is simply not true in most places because the vast majority of red states are seeing very little migration from California. There's not a lot of California people, you know, moving into Indiana, not a lot of California people moving into Ohio, a lot of these places, Uh, not a lot of California people moving into West Virginia. And so where does the leftist energy that's turning some of these cities blue, that's having an impact in these cities come from? And the idea here of the progressive yokel is that it is local people. It is local progressives. And I, in, in their formulation, I, you know, I think they get that part right. Their formulation where they get it wrong is their view of the progressive lo- yokel is a boomerang migrant. That is somebody who grew up in Cincinnati, moved off to San Francisco for a few years, then came back full of San Francisco values. And I don't think this is actually accurate. Um, what I would say is, and I, I'm, you know, as a boomerang migrant, I have some, you know, insights into this. So I, you know, grew up in Indiana and I lived in Chicago. I lived in New York. I came back to Indiana. Yes, P- 
people who do that do bring back many of the values of those coastal cities with them. They are often more progressive in their politics, but they're rarely the the loudest, uh, kind of most obnoxious, most energetic voices. And I, I think there's a few reasons for this. One, once you've actually lived in a place like San Francisco or New York or D.C. or Boston, you have experienced the complexity and reality of the city. You see that, yes, they have a lot of great things about them, but they also have a lot of downsides too, right? I saw the needles on the street, you know, for example, right? I've seen the homeless people everywhere in the tent encampments. Uh, and, and yeah, and you know what? I see that their culture uh, is as quirky as the place I came from. And in my, many ways, maybe it's got this elements that are as toxic there as are, and maybe this, you know, backwater red state burg that I came from. So once you've been there, San Francisco is no longer Oz. And also, once you've been there, you can always console yourself that you made it. You know, if you didn't make it to the top of the game, at least you were in the game, right? I was in the major leagues, if you will, for a period of time. And I I like to use the analogy of running a marathon. So I ran a marathon in 2003, and now I can always tell people for the rest of my life that I ran a marathon, you know, that I made it. I made it to that, you know, kind of call elite level or whatever, running a marathon. Am I have any intention of ever running another marathon again? No, but they can never take that one away from me. Uh, no matter what happened. I was a, um, you know, I was a marathon completer. So who are these progressive yokels? Well, there's two kinds of progressive yokels. One is the people who never left. Maybe they went to college and came back. So they're the people who never left. Uh, secondly, it's people who moved to a second or third tier city to take a job out of college, right? So this is the person maybe who got a job at Ford in Detroit or Procter and Gamble in Cincinnati out of college. They're not from there, but they got recruited to one of these two tier two, tier three cities. And now they're trying to kind of justify that to themselves. And so what you end up with is in both of these classes of people, particularly when they're from the educated milieu, that they live in kind of an urban environment, maybe they are, you know, they, they lean a little progressive, they have immense status anxiety. They really want to be taken seriously by their aspirational peers on the coast. Again, this is like the whole idea of we pretend that the top people in every in every different domain are all peers. We sort of like to pretend sometime, or, you know, at least some people like to try to aspire to pretend that the top people in every city are sort of peers. So, you know, the, you know, the mayors in every cities are sort of, you know, they're all peers as mayors or the heads of the chambers of commerce are all, you know, peers and, you know, the, the, you know, progressive activists in all these cities are, are, are peers. And that's just, again, it's just not true. Quite frankly, the best talent gets recruited to the coast. So if you got recruited into a, you know, second or third tier city, Odds are, and I'm not saying this in every time, and this is applicable in every single case, odds are you're probably not the most elite talent. So that's you know important to, to keep in mind. And so uh, they want, however, and they sort of sense that, and they want to be taken seriously as the peers of the people on the coast, right? They are very deeply afraid of being viewed as not that much different from kind of the hayseed Trump voters in, the, you know, in their own red state. So they, they work hard to put as much distance between themselves and those voters as possible. And so this causes them to be, in many ways, more extreme uh, than a lot of people uh, on, on the coast. And as I say, uh, they're strivers. And like all strivers, the progressive yokel tries too hard, you know, and he follows the rules too perfectly. 
It's almost like say I like to say they know the words, but not the music. That gives you a sense of it. So they're it's like the person who wants to be in the cool kids click at school. They're buying the same brands. They're they're dressing extremely, you know, the same. They're saying the same words. They're doing everything they can to try to get in. It's just like high school, right? And these are the people who want to get into the cool kids click. And, you know, having lived, you know, for five years in the Upper West Side of New York, one of the most famously progressive left-wing neighborhoods in the country and one of the great urban neighborhoods in the world, quite frankly, uh, love it. Uh, it's a lot more pleasant uh, to talk to kind of the genuine progressives who live there uh, who don't have these kind of status anxieties. Or say they may have some status anxieties, but they're of a different sort than some of these like blue state guys here in Indy who, again, they're just... They don't, there's nothing progressive about them, right? They, they are just pure trend followers. They're just loudly, you know, you know, glomming on to the trend to kind of prove how cool they are. And there's just, there's just no original ideas. There's no original thought. And so it's just, it's just not uh, as pleasant. And I, as I was, uh, I was tweeting about this and I said, just imagine how the progressive yokel in a place like uh, uh, the Midwest must feel when somebody on the coasts ask them, where do you live? And they have to say, Indiana, right? That That's painful. That's painful for them. And that's why I say the real insult here is not calling them a progressive or a liberal, right? Because if you call them a libtard or something like that, well, they're, you know, they, they're like, hey, I am a liberal. I'm proud of it. That's who I am. That insult, actually, they welcome that insult because it validates their identity. When you call them a yokel, that's actually the profanity uh, is not the insulting part. It's the yokel part that is uh, the insult because that is their deepest fear is that they uh, are seen as a yokel and that they may in fact really actually be a yokel. So if you want to understand where the real progressive energy in uh, these red states is coming from, it's coming from this progressive yokel type uh, of person. So hopefully that's just a little bit of insight it's not, you know, the Californians, if Indiana goes blue, for example, it's not going to be because Californians moved here, most likely, because again, there just aren't very many people from California uh, moving here. So I'm going to wrap this up for today. And, uh, you know, I got a piece of feedback from a, a listener that you should put some outro music so that I know when the thing is ending. I feel like the podcast ends abruptly. So I think I actually have some outro music that I've just never used. And if I can find that, on my hard drive, I will append it to the end of this, uh, and and you'll get to see what you think. Let me know what you think, and if it just ends abruptly, you'll know I couldn't find it. But again, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.